Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you in your journey with Christ. For additional resources, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. Well, hey, church. Uh, My name is Luke. I get to serve as one of the ministers here at PCC. If you would, open your Bibles with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4 is where we're going to be. Before we jump in, have you heard the one about the two rich retired guys who are playing golf together one afternoon when all of a sudden up in the golf cart comes this gorgeous young woman? I mean, she can't be more than about 30 and she walks up to one of the guys with a glass of lemonade and she says, well, here you go, honey. I thought you might be thirsty. Now you boys have fun now. And then as she drives off in the golf cart, the one guy looks at the other guy. He says, is that your girlfriend? He says, no. It's my wife. Your wife? How in the world did you get a beautiful woman like that to marry the likes of you? Aren't you 77 years old? He said, yeah, well, I may have misled her about my age by about 20 years. Oh, you told her you were 57? No, I told her I was 97. (laughs) Now, I have never been particularly rich or good-looking or magnetic or powerful, but those of you who are, perhaps you've had the experience of wondering why somebody wants to get close to you. Like, why do you really want to date me? Why do you really want to get to know me or be my friend? Is it because they like me or do they just want what I can give them? And that's the dilemma that Jesus is facing here in John chapter four. So far in the gospel of John, we have seen Jesus do some amazing things. We've seen him turn water into wine and recruit this group of followers and have these incredible conversations with people like Nicodemus and the woman at the well. And by this point, people are starting to hear about the miracles that Jesus is doing and they wanna get close to him. They want a piece of the action. And yet John chapter two, verse 24 says, But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Jesus saw the hearts of the people around him, and he saw that they wanted the miracles, but not the message. They wanted the signs, but not the savior. They wanted the power, but not the person. They weren't really followers. They were just fans, consumers. And you know, Jesus sees our hearts too. And if I could be honest with you here for just a moment today, perhaps our greatest concern for the health of the church right now in the wake of this pandemic is that we would fall prey to the exact same thing that we would just become consumers. Now hear me, I am so thankful for the ways that technology has been able to keep us connected this year, but that also comes with a danger because when all we have to do is just click on a broadcast and watch for an hour and then click it off and go on with our day and think we're all good to go because we've got our spiritual shot in the arm, then we can become in danger of being mere consumers of spiritual content rather than fully engaged followers of Christ. That was Jesus's concern here. And it's our concern too. So it begs the question then, what does Jesus want? When, when Jesus looks at our hearts, what does he want to see, to find? Well, let's find out by looking at an encounter that Jesus has here in John chapter four. We'll start in verses 43 through 47. It says this, 
After the two days, he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They'd seen all that he'd done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. You remember that? And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Now, if you're a parent, then you know this fear deep down that that something would happen to your child. Well, for this powerful man, this top of the food chain royal official, his nightmare has come true and his son is dying. Some of you probably know that pain. And this man who could do so much is now all of a sudden faced with a crisis far beyond his ability to fix. He must have tried everything. You can imagine doctors, medicine, but day by day he watched his son grow weaker and weaker as the fever raged. And when his little boy cried out to him, daddy, help me, there was nothing he could do. And understand this happens to all of us. I pray you never lose a child, but we will all be faced with crises that are beyond our ability to control And we know this, when we see each other at church and we say hi and we smile and we talk, it's all good. But I bet, I bet if I looked inside your heart, alongside the joy, I would also find disappointment, grief, hurt, fear, anger. Just like Justin said last week, you can't script your life. So when your life goes off script, what do you do? Well, this man came to Jesus. Now notice, he's a royal official. He could have gone to see the king, but instead he comes to Jesus, and that's a good choice. But if we're honest with ourselves, it's a choice we don't always make, isn't it? In fact, we see here that there are three barriers that this man had to overcome before he came to Jesus. Three barriers that we have to overcome as well. And the first barrier he had to overcome and that we have to overcome is fear. The barrier of fear. I mean, can you imagine This man traveled 20 miles, maybe on foot, from his home in Capernaum to Cana, where Jesus was. 20 miles. That's a long time to be away from your son who's on his deathbed. Can you imagine? I mean, what if, what if in all those hours that he was away, what if something were to happen to his boy and he missed it? What if? And you feel that, right? Like, sure, yeah, I'd like to come to Jesus. I'd like to bring this issue to him. But, but what if it hurts? What if I lose my friends? What if they look at me different? What if my life becomes more unstable? What if my spouse won't accept me? What if? Fear often keeps us from Jesus. The second barrier, though, is pride. Pride. This guy was a royal official. He's used to having people come to him, and now he's the one who's having to go to Jesus, and he's the one who's begging for help. A royal official prostrate before a backwoods carpenter. That's like a United States senator driving all the way from Washington, D.C., down to Mooresville to go beg for help from a construction worker. This guy had to swallow his pride. Uh, <laughs> I heard a story once about Muhammad Ali, the famous boxer who was as as well known for his ego as he was for his fighting ability. And I heard a story that at one time Muhammad Ali boarded a plane and as the flight was getting ready to take off, the time came for all the passengers to buckle their seatbelts. And so everybody did. Everyone, that is, except for the notoriously arrogant Muhammad Ali. 
Uh, well, uh, so the stewardess eventually came by and she politely asked him to put on his seatbelt, to which Ali said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. <laughs> the stewardess quietly but firmly replied, Sir, Superman don't need no airplane. <laughs> you see, if you're gonna come to Jesus, you gotta check your ego at the door. You gotta admit that you are not Superman and that you can't do it on your own. The barrier of fear, the barrier of pride, the third barrier he had to overcome is the barrier of doubt. It says that this man came to Jesus because he'd heard He'd heard the stories. He'd heard stories of water turning to wine, stories of healing the sick, stories of miracles that probably sounded too good to be true. Maybe that's what you think when you read the Bible. I mean, like, could this kind of stuff really happen? It sounds a little bit far-fetched. But this man came anyway to see for himself. In his autobiography, the German theologian Helmut Thielicke tells about his family's experience with poverty living in war-torn Germany after World War II. And, and times were so tough, in fact, that Thielicke's four little children would take their mother's cookbooks and they would lick the pages. A terrible poverty. Helmut Thielicke also loved to smoke cigars, and he didn't have access to many of them, of course, living this life of poverty. But once he'd been given this box of very fine cigars, but one day, all of a sudden, this box of cigars mysteriously vanished. It was absolutely nowhere to be found. Well, quite a while later, one day, Mrs. Thielicke was raking in the garden when she found some half-decayed cigars there in the dirt. It turns out their six-year-old son had swiped the cigars and buried them in the ground. When they confronted the little boy about this, he said, well, you were actually only supposed to learn about this after the cigar tree had grown. <laughs> you see, the little boy had watched his mother plant these flower bulbs in the garden, and he thought, he thought that maybe if he planted those expensive cigars of his father's, that cigar tree would grow, and it would not only satisfy his father's love of smoking, but it would provide some extra cash for the family so that they could also pay off their mortgage. Helmut Thielicke said, naturally, we could only praise him for his good intentions. I mean, how could you scold a child for innocent faith like that? Now, of course, we know that planted cigars don't grow into cigar trees. That's impossible, right? But listen, Jesus is in the business of growing cigar trees. And if you are going to follow him, it's going to require moving past your fear, your pride, your doubt, and planting a cigar by faith. And that's what this man does. He asks Jesus for the impossible. Take a look. Verses 47 through 50 says this. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied. Your son will live. So the man asks Jesus to heal his son, and we expect Jesus to say, yeah, sure, absolutely, I'm on it, let's go right now. But instead, Jesus sounds exasperated. What's he getting at here? Well, let's illustrate it like this. Uh, I'm, 
I'm not a horse guy. I prefer animals that are small and live in tanks and don't require more than about five minutes of attention per day. And also, in my mind, like I have a car, which kind of defeats the purpose of having a horse. Uh, But I've heard something about horses. I've learned this, that if a new horse wants to join a herd of wild horses, that there's this process that these horses go through. For example, if a young stallion wants to join the herd, before the stallion fully makes his approach to the herd, the lead mare will turn toward the stallion, she'll flatten her ears and stare him down. And the stallion will stop because this mare is challenging him, establishing her authority. And so the stallion will then bow, eyes to the ground and begin pawing the ground, taking the posture of a young submissive horse, like a foal. And after establishing her authority, the lead mare will then turn expose her flank to the new stallion and raise her ears. This is a vulnerable position to her. Her flank is where she potentially could be attacked. So she's demonstrating openness, vulnerability. It's an invitational stance when she raises her ears like that. And so seeing this, the stallion then gets up and approaches, at which point the lead mare will turn again, flatten her ears and stare him down. The stallion will kneel. And again, she'll turn her flank, raise her ears, and the stallion will approach, challenge and invitation, challenge and invitation. They go through this process over and over, the horses inching closer and closer together until finally they touch. And the new stallion is admitted into the herd to follow the lead mare under the mare's authority. Now that's what Jesus is doing here. He's challenging this guy. He's saying, hey, before I let you in, I just gotta know, are you like all the others? Do you just want a quick fix to your problem? Do you just want a taste of my tricks? Or are you willing to put your faith in me and follow? You see, that's what Jesus wants. When Jesus looks into our hearts, he wants to find faith. When Jesus looks into our hearts, he wants to find faith. So before Jesus offers you an invitation, he might just challenge you. So can I challenge you today? If you stripped all of this away, if you took away the church building and the lights and the music and the broadcast and the content, if you took away your Christian family and your Christian friends, if you took away all the cultural benefits of following Jesus, strip it all away, and when it's all gone, if Jesus looks in your heart, would he still find faith? Because that's what he wants. There's this great chapter in the Bible, Hebrews chapter 11, and it's commonly known as the Hall of Faith. You should go read it this week. The writer of Hebrews tells these incredible stories of all these Old Testament heroes who live these radical lives of faith in God. And Hebrews chapter 11 begins in verse one by saying something profound about the nature of faith. Verse one says this. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we do not see. So let's apply that verse to this story with Jesus and the royal official. This guy did not see Jesus heal his son, but he had confidence in what he hoped for. He had confidence in Jesus enough to turn around and walk home anyway. That's what we're gonna see pretty soon. He's doing what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, verse seven, when Paul says, we walk by faith, not by sight. This man literally took a walk of faith. Hebrews 11 goes on to say in verse six, and without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. 
But let's pause for a second because maybe right now you're not feeling like a person of great faith. Uh, Maybe your faith, if you're being honest, it is being crowded out by fear or by doubt or by pride. But the beautiful thing is that Jesus teaches that it's not the amount of your faith, but the object of your faith that counts. It's not the amount of your faith, but the object of your faith. Elsewhere, Jesus says that even even if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, nothing will be impossible. Matthew chapter 17. Uh, In our family, we have uh, these Bible verse CDs that play in our minivan as we drive around. And so uh, one of these songs that we listen to is about faith like a mustard seed. And so the other day, they'd just gotten done listening to this song. And Judah asked my wife, Rebecca, uh, what a mustard seed was. And so Rebecca was explaining this to him. Have you ever seen a mustard seed? I have one in my office. It's tiny, minuscule. Think of the sesame seeds on the bun of a Big Mac. It's like that, tiny, tiny. And so after uh, Rebecca gets done explaining to Judah what a mustard seed is, he said, Mommy, what's a ketchup seed? (laughs) Good question, little man. (laughs) Bottom line is, this is a tiny amount of faith Jesus is talking about. But a tiny faith in a big God can work wonders because it's not the amount of your faith, but the object of your faith that counts. For example, I could have a huge amount of faith that I could strap some feathers onto my arms here and if I flap them really hard, I could fly. But I promise you, if I jump off off, off of this stage, even with a huge amount of faith, I'm not gonna get very far, right? But if I have just a little bit of faith in that big airplane, just enough faith to get me on the plane, even if I'm scared out of my mind, even if I still have my doubts, then that plane is still gonna get me where I need to go. It's not the object, or not the amount of your faith, but the object of your faith that counts. And you can always count on Jesus. So when Jesus looks into our hearts, he wants to find faith, but exactly what kind of faith does Jesus want? Well, this story today in John chapter four shows us five characteristics of the faith that Jesus wants to find in us. First thing is this, Jesus wants a desperate faith, a desperate faith. This man came to Jesus because he was desperate. Maybe today you're desperate. Maybe your plans have fallen apart. Your life is not what you thought it would be. You're stuck and you don't have anywhere else to turn. And let me tell you, that's a really good place to be because desperate prayers are the best prayers. Only needy people pray. My father-in-law is here today. He's been a preacher for four decades. And last year he walked his church through and they spent the whole year focusing on this one word, desperate. And he said it to them over and over and over again. We are in a desperate situation if we are not desperate for God. Jesus wants a desperate faith. A couple of weeks ago, I shared the story of a man that I met at a ministry that our church supports in Austria called TCM. Well, that same week that I was there, I was actually talking with another preacher from Albania who was just really struggling to make ends meet. And, and he said this to me, and I quote, He said, in Albania, we have no budget. All the churches get together once a month. We start off with 11,000 euros. Understand, that's not very much. He said, we start off with 11,000 euros. That has to cover taxes, rent, salaries. We had an analyst come in to look things over. He was not a Christian. He looked at the numbers and he said, you're done. You're dead, no chance. So, the preacher told me, (laughs) we depend on the Holy Spirit and miracles. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) I want a desperate faith like that, a faith where total desperation leads to total dependence on God. Jesus wants a desperate faith. Secondly, Jesus wants a personal faith. 
Think about it. This royal official had heard about Jesus. He probably knew some people who had seen Jesus. He'd heard the rumors, the opinions about Jesus, but he hadn't met Jesus for himself. So what did he do? He didn't send a message to Jesus. He didn't send a servant to Jesus. No, he went to see Jesus face to face for himself to find out if what was true for others could also be true for him. And some of you need to come face to face with Jesus because you've been in church and you've been around Christian friends and Christian family and you've heard the stories and you've seen what Jesus has done in other people's lives and it's time for you to meet him for yourself to find out if the stories are true. So if you're ready to dive into a personal faith in Jesus Christ and, and to make it yours, go to mypcc.info, tap on the card that says baptism. We would love, 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 love to walk with you to Jesus. That's the best part of our jobs. Jesus wants a desperate faith, a personal faith. Thirdly, Jesus wants a trusting faith. Look what happens here in verse 50. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. So we've seen here that in just a few short verses, this man has moved from desperation to hope, to belief, to trust. Now, I don't know where you are on that spectrum today. Maybe you're in desperation mode and you don't see the way out right now. Or, or maybe you have some hope that perhaps maybe, maybe Jesus could even help you. Or maybe you really do truly believe that Jesus is strong enough to rescue you. But wherever you are on that spectrum, Jesus wants you to end in trust. Trusting him, that you will just take him at his word and do what he says, even, even if you don't get the answer you want. Because make no mistake, when this man came to Jesus, he did not get the answer he wanted or expected. Justin reminded us so powerfully last week that maybe the reason Jesus isn't giving you what you want is that he's trying to show you what you need I've heard it said like this before, Jesus will always give you what you would have asked for if you knew as much as he knows. Let me say that one more time. Jesus will always give you what you would have asked for if you knew as much as he knows. So are you willing to trust him? In this instance, Jesus wanted way more than just to save the official's son. He wanted to save the official himself and the, even the official's whole family. And we'll see that happen here in just a minute. You see, Jesus's goal isn't just to fix your problems, it's to fix you. For example, take a look at what one soldier in the Civil War wrote. He said this, I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn to serve. I asked for health that I might do great things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for wealth that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might earn the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel the need of God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing I asked for, but all I hoped for. Despite myself, my prayers were answered, and I am, among all men, most richly blessed. Jesus wants a trusting faith. Fourth, Jesus wants obedient faith. I've heard it said before that faith alone saves, but faith that saves is never alone. 
Faith in Jesus always leads to obedience to Jesus. I mean, can you imagine the amount of faith it took for this guy to turn around and walk home alone? Because by all appearances, his last best hope for saving his son was now gone, but he did it anyway. And for some of you, my guess is there's a tugging at your conscience and Jesus is asking you to do something that goes against reason and you're putting him off. But real faith is obedient faith. Finally, the fifth thing is this, Jesus wants a shared faith. A shared faith. Look what happens here at the end of our story, verses 51 through 53. It says, while he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. So this man shared the story of what Jesus had done in his life and the people around him put their faith in Jesus. A saving faith must be a sharing faith. Like Steve talked about, we're taking the one challenge together as a church this year and it's an exercise of faith because it's a little bit scary. But a saving faith is a sharing faith. So if you haven't done it yet, go to mypcc.info, tap on the card that says one challenge and, and click on that. Find out about what we're doing this year to live out our faith as a church and to share this faith with others and hop on board with what God is doing here. Because ultimately we are called to live this kind of faith because this is the kind of faith that Jesus himself lived. Jesus pushed past the fear and the pride and the doubt and he lived a personal faith, a face-to-face intimacy with God. He lived a desperate faith. When he was in the garden of Gethsemane, weighed down by his grief, he approached God in prayer and he chose faith anyway. It was a trusting faith. When the devil offered him easier ways out, Jesus chose to trust God's will anyway. It was an obedient faith. When God the Father gave Jesus the Son the mission of dying on the cross for our sins, he didn't have to, but he chose to obey and take our sin to the cross anyway. Because it's a sharing faith. And Jesus did all of this so that he could share the blessings of his faithfulness with us. He was a cigar (laughs) planted in the ground, impossibly dead, but from that decay, God brought life. First Peter chapter one, verse 21 says, through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. I mentioned earlier that I'm a fan of small, contained, non-smelly, non-messy animals. Uh, As our son Judah has been potty training, we've been bribing him with these little critters to put in his fish tank. And so currently, I think we're up to five fish, uh, four snails, two crabs, and two uh, shrimp. I I might've gotten that all mixed up. But anyway, bottom line is I'm getting my paychecks direct deposited at the pet store now. (laughs) And and in this process of learning about these little aquatic creatures, I came across an interesting tidbit. Did you know that if you catch a small shark and you confine it, it will stay a size that is proportionate to its aquarium. In other words, you can have a six inch long shark that is fully developed. But if you turn that shark loose in the ocean, it will grow to the eight feet long that God intended it to be. And I wonder, I wonder if we're like that sometimes. That if we're not careful, we can end up being a church of nice little six-inch Christians swimming around in our tank, safe, consumed, or content to just consume what's being given to us, happy and content. 
when Jesus made you for the wild, to live a life of faith, a growing, growing faith. Now notice in our story today, this man goes through at least three stages of faith that we see. First, we see him have some faith in what other people say about Jesus, enough faith to go check out Jesus for himself. And then his faith grows and he decides that he believes Jesus's word for himself. He believes it enough to trust Jesus and walk home. And then his faith grows yet again when Jesus heals his son and he experiences the power of God in his own life and it bleeds over to those around him and they all come to a deeper understanding of faith as well. You see, faith is not just a one-time decision that you made long ago. Faith is a growing daily dependence on God. So let me just ask you, is your faith growing? What's Jesus been saying to you lately? And what are you doing about it? And if you can't answer that question, then it might be time to get out of the tank. To get out of the tank and take the one challenge with us. To get out of the tank and start reading God's word on your own and diving into prayer and learning how to have a relationship with him. To get out of the tank and, and to be baptized, to surrender your life to Jesus Christ for the first time, to, to get out of the tank and to bless that person in your life who absolutely doesn't deserve it, to get out of the tank and to come back to worship with us in person, to get out of the tank and to live a life of faith because when Jesus looks in your heart, he wants to find faith. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. You are faithful. Always have been, you always will be. And Jesus, we praise you for your faithfulness. That because you chose to trust, to obey, to be fully dependent on God in every way, you went to the cross, you took our sin and our shame and our faithlessness. You died the death that we deserved and you rose to new life and now you're offering that life to us and through your Holy Spirit's power, you're enabling us to become faithful. We can't do this on our own, Lord, so we're begging you to fill us with faith. Make us a church that trusts you and lives in radical dependence upon you. A church willing to surrender. Because even though we may be people with a little bit of faith some days, we serve a God who's totally worthy, totally trustworthy. So we praise you, Jesus, and we thank you. It's in your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening today. It's our desire to help you grow as you partner with us in our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you have any questions about our church, would like to attend an online service, or plan an in-person visit with us, go to plainfieldchristian.com. If you'd like to receive our podcast directly to your device, we encourage you to subscribe on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.